This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Omakase by Waiki Wang, which was published in The New Yorker in June of 2018. She had heard of these men, especially the kind you met on the internet. She had heard of yellow fever. She didn't like that it was called yellow fever. To name a kind of attraction after a disease carried by mosquitoes that killed one out of four people, severely infected, said something about the attraction. The story was chosen by Gary Steingart, who's the author of five novels, including most recently Lake Success and Our Country Friends. Hi, Gary. Hi, Deborah. How are you? All right. Thank you for doing this. Mm, of course. Again, um, in past episodes of the podcast, you read stories and talked about stories by Andrea Lee and Laurie Moore. Mm-hmm. And when we talked um, last month about doing another taping, you said you wanted to read a story by a funny immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Yeah, I mean, look, funny immigrant stuff is, is sort of my shtick, and I love it when it, someone else does it. And this <laughs> is... Uh, a very dry martini of humor. There's almost no vermouth in this. Uh, and actually, there's a martini joke in there. But I love the way one joke is layered on top of the other, but in a very non-fussy way. You know, I'm sort of a more maximalist humorist. Look at me! You know, but this is sort of like, <laughs> mm, you know. Waiki Wang is a minimalist humorist. <laughs> a minimalist humorist. That's amazing. A moomerist, if you will. Uh, Minumerist. A <laughs> So humor about immigration probably inevitably involves some level of guilt mm-hmm. and some level of resentment. <laughs> and you think you think there's overlap. I mean, in this story, what's involved is um, the main character is the daughter of Chinese immigrants and clearly is between worlds, put it yeah, that way. Yeah. I mean, I think as immigrants were so attuned to this question. I had dinner with New Yorker staff writer Jiayang Fan, and we were talking about she had recently done a great um, piece for uh, This American Life. They kind of put her on a game show where they had Chinese Americans say a couple of phrases that she had chosen, and she had to guess what age they had emigrated to America. And I thought that was really funny because we're always thinking that. Like whenever I meet a, a, a Russian, I'm like, okay, when did he come here? Where Now now I, with the war in Ukraine, I also have to think of like where did he come from? Like all this kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, we're, we're so obsessive about these little latitudes of immigration. And, um, and this story does it so um, elegantly, I think. Mm-hmm. Do you think this is a quality of her writing in general in her novels? Yeah, yeah. She, I mean, it's just such a pleasure. And she's, you know, she's a very funny person, obviously. But I remember when I first met her, we were on a, we were on a stage, and there were these comedians who were on stage with us, and they were trying to out funny us. And I remember, like, we put up a spirited fight, right? Because <laughs> you know, the idea is that like novelists are, you know, we're like just slapped on there, but it's you know, everyone's there for the comedians. And I was like, screw this, you know. I'm a huge fighter for the role of comedy and satire in fiction. I, I, I teach writing at Columbia, and the two classes I teach one is on about immigrant fiction, and the other one is on uh, is called uh, "So You Want to Write Funny?" is the name of the class with a question mark at the end, because um, I think. Those two things are the things that I care the most about, sort of making sure that they exist, first of all, that they're not sort of um, put into a little corner, you know, um, because I think um, 
to me, writing funny is harder than not. Uh, and I think it deserves a round of applause, such as I think just about everything that Wakey does. You know? Well, great. I think we'll go straight to the story now. And now here's Gary Steingart reading Omakase by Wakey Wang. Omakase. The couple decided that tonight they would go out for sushi. Two years ago, they'd met online. Three months ago, they'd moved in together. Previously, she'd lived in Boston, but now she lived in New York with him. The woman was a research analyst at a bank downtown. The man was a ceramic pottery instructor at a studio uptown. Both were in their late 30s, and neither of them wanted kids. Both enjoyed Asian cuisine, specifically sushi, specifically omakase. It was the element of surprise that they liked, and it suited them in different ways. She got nervous looking at a list of options and would second-guess herself. He enjoyed going with the flow. What is the best choice, she'd ask him when flipping through menus with many pages and many words, and he'd reply, the best choice is whatever you feel like eating at the moment. Before they got there, the man had described the restaurant as a hole in the wall. He had found it on a list of top sushi places in central Harlem, not that there were many. So instead of top sushi places, it may just have been a list of all sushi places. Be prepared, he said. Nothing is actually a hole in the wall, she replied. Yet the restaurant was, as the man had described, a tiny room with a sushi bar and a cash register. Behind the bar stood an old sushi chef. Behind the cash register sat a young waitress. The woman estimated that the hole could seat no more than six adults and a child. Good thing sushi pieces were small. Upon entering, she gave the man a look. The look said, is this going to be okay? Usually for sushi, they went downtown to places that were brightly lit, crowded, and did not smell so strongly of fish. But tonight, downtown trains were experiencing delays because someone had jumped onto the tracks at Port Authority and been hit. That was something the woman had to get used to about New York. In Boston, the subway didn't get you anywhere, but the stations were generally clean and quiet, and no one bothered you on the actual train. Also, there were rarely delays due to people jumping in front of trains, probably because the trains came so infrequently that there were quicker ways to die. In New York, the subway generally got you where you needed to go, but you had to endure a lot. For example, by the end of her first month, the woman had already seen someone pee in the corner of a car. She had been solicited for money numerous times. And if she didn't have money, the same person would ask her for food or a pencil or a tissue to wipe his nose. On a trip into Brooklyn on the L, she had almost been kicked in the face by a pole dancing kid. She'd refused to give that kid any money. You worry too much, the man said, whenever she brought up the fact that she didn't feel quite at home in New York. And not only did she not feel at home, she felt that she was constantly in danger. You exaggerate, the man replied. At the restaurant, he gave the woman a look of his own. This look said two things. One, you worry too much. And two, this is fun. I'm having fun. Now you have fun. The woman was having fun, but she also didn't want to get food poisoning. As if having read her mind, the man said, if you do get sick, you can blame me. Eventually, the waitress noticed that the couple had arrived. She had been picking polish off her nails. She looked up but didn't get up and instead waved them to the bar. 
Sit anywhere you like, she said sleepily. Then she disappeared behind a black curtain embroidered with the Chinese character for the sun. When they first started dating, they had agreed that if there weren't any glaring red flags, and there weren't, they would try to live together, and they did. To make things fair, each tried to find a job in the other city. Not surprisingly, the demand for financial analysts in New York was much higher than the demand for pottery instructors in Boston. Huzzah, he texted the day the movers arrived at her old apartment. She texted back a smiley face, then later pictures of her empty living room, bedroom, bathroom, and the pile of furniture and things she was donating so that once they were living together, they would not have, for example, two dining room sets, 20 pots and pans, seven paring knives, and so on. She was one of those people, the kind to create an Excel spreadsheet of everything she owned and send it to him so that he could then highlight what he also owned and specify quantity and type, since it might make sense to have seven paring knives if they were of different thicknesses and lengths and could pair different things. He was one of these people, the kind to look at an Excel spreadsheet and squint. Before the big move, she had done some research on the best time to drive into the city in a large moving truck. She did not want to take up too much space. It would pain her if the moving truck was responsible for a blocked intersection and a mess of cars honking nonstop. The Internet said that New Yorkers were tough and could probably handle anything. But the Internet also said to avoid the angriest of New Yorkers during rush hour, try 5 a.m., When she arrived at 5 a.m., he was waiting for her in the lobby of his building with a coffee, an extra sweatshirt, and a very enthusiastic kiss. After the kiss, he handed her a set of keys. There were four in total, one for the building, one for the trash room, one for the mailbox, one for their apartment door. Because all the keys looked the same, he said that it might take her a month to figure out which was which, but it took her only a day. She was happy that he was happy. She would frequently wonder, but never ask, if he had looked for a job as diligently as she had. I'll just have water, the man said, when the waitress gave them each a cup of hot tea. It was eight degrees outside, and the waitress explained that the tea, made from barley, was intentionally paired with the Pacific oyster, which was the first course of the omakase. The waitress looked no older than 18. She was Asian, with a diamond nose stud and a purple lip ring. When talking to her, the woman could only stare at the ring and bite her own lip. The woman was also Asian, Chinese, and seeing another Asian with facial piercings reminded her of all the things she had not been able to get away with as a kid. Her immigrant parents had wanted the best for her, so imagine coming home to them with a lip ring. First, her parents would have made her take the ring out. Then they would have slapped her. Then they would have reminded her that a lip ring made her look like a hoodlum. And in this country, not everyone would give someone with an Asian face the benefit of the doubt. If she looked like a hoodlum, then she would have trouble getting into college. If she couldn't get into college, then she couldn't get a job. If she couldn't get a job, then she couldn't enter society. If she couldn't enter society, then she might as well go to jail. Ultimately, a lip ring could only land her in jail. What other purpose did it serve? She was not joining the circus. She was not part of an indigenous African tribe. She was not Marilyn Manson. 
Her father, for some strange reason, knew who Marilyn Manson was and listened to him and liked him. Then, in jail, she could make friends with other people wearing lip rings and form a gang. Is that what you want as a career, her parents would have asked, to form a lip ring gang in jail? And she would have answered no. Tea it is, the man said. He smiled at the pretty waitress. She was pretty. The purple lip ring matched the purple streak in her hair, which matched the purple nail polish. Nevertheless, the man complimented the waitress's unremarkable black uniform. The waitress returned the favor by complimenting the man's circular eyeglass frames. Oh, these silly things, the man said, lifting his glasses off his nose for a second. They're not silly, the waitress said matter-of-factly. They're cool. My boyfriend couldn't pull those off. He doesn't have the head shape for it. If the man lost interest, he didn't show it. If anything, knowing that the pretty waitress had a boyfriend only made the flirtation more fun. Kids now are so different, the woman thought. She hadn't had a boyfriend until college. She wasn't this bold until after grad school. But the waitress might not have immigrant parents. Perhaps her parents were born here, which would mean different expectations. Or parenting so opposed to the way they had been brought up by their own strict immigrant parents that they were basically no expectations. Another possibility, the waitress might have been adopted, in which case all bets were off. Kids now were not only different, but lucky, the woman thought. She wanted to say to the waitress, you have no idea how hard some of us worked so that you could dye your hair purple and pierce your lip. The man nudged the woman who was sitting next to him like a statue. You're staring, he said. The waitress had noticed too and huffed off. The mugs that the tea came in were handleless. The tea was so hot that neither of them could pick up the handleless mug comfortably. They could only blow at the steam, hoping that the tea would cool and comment to each other on how hot it was. Until now, the sushi chef had not said a word to the couple, but it seemed to irritate him as he prepared the Pacific oyster, which turned out to be delicious, to see them not drink the tea. This is the Japanese way, he finally said. He reached over the bar for the woman's mug. He then held the mug delicately at the very top with two fingertips and a thumb. The other hand was placed under the mug like a saucer. This is the Japanese way, he said again. He handed the mug back to the woman. The couple tried to mimic the chef, but perhaps their skin was thinner than his. Holding the mug the Japanese way didn't hurt any less than sticking their hands into boiling water. The man put his mug down. The woman, however, did not want to offend the chef and held her mug until she felt her hands go numb. Now that the man knew the chef could speak English, he tried to talk to him. What kind of mug is this, he asked. It looks handmade. The glaze is magnificent. Then the man turned to the woman and pointed out how the green-blue glaze of their mug seemed to differ. The layering, he said, was subtly thicker and darker in this part of her mug than in his. Hmm, the woman said. To her, a mug was a mug. It's a Yunomi, isn't it? he said to the chef. Taller than it is wide, handleless. Yes, handleless with a trimmed foot, used in traditional tea ceremonies. The chef looked suspiciously at the man. Maybe he was wondering if the man was fucking with him, as people sometimes did when they encountered a different culture and, in an effort to tease, came off as incredibly earnest, only to draw information out of the person they were teasing until the person looked foolish. 
He's a potter, the woman said. The man quickly turned to her as if to say, why did you just do that? We were having so much fun. Then he began to laugh, leaning back and almost falling off the bar stool. I'm sorry, he said to the chef. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. The mug is beautiful, and you should be proud to have something like this in your kitchen. I would be. The chef said, thank you, and served them their first piece of fish on similarly green-blue ceramic plates that the man promised not to scrutinize. Enjoy, the chef said, and gave them a steady thumbs up. The man responded with his own thumbs up. The woman liked how easily the man handled everything. He never took anything too seriously. He was a natural extrovert. By now, the woman knew that although he worked alone in his studio, he not only enjoyed the company of others, but needed it. When out, he talked to anyone and everyone. Sometimes it was jokey talk, the kind he was having with the sushi chef. Sometimes it was playful banter, the kind he had with the pretty waitress. The flirting didn't bother the woman. Instead, it made her feel good that the man was desired. While he was not handsome, he had a friendly face and rosy cheeks. The word wholesome came to mind. He was someone who could have just stepped out of a normal Rockwell painting. Their first official date had been on Skype. It had consisted of each of them drinking a bottle of wine and watching the same movie on their respective laptops. He suggested House of Flying Daggers, and she said that she was okay with watching something else. Maybe something that wasn't so overtly Chinese, and no offense to the talented Zhang Yimao, so old school. What do you mean old school, he had asked. I mean Tang Dynasty, she had said. She was fine with watching something more mainstream, set in modern day with storylines about non-Asians. She didn't need the man to make her feel comfortable, if that was, in fact, what he was trying to do. But it's a critically acclaimed movie, he'd replied. So they ended up watching House of Flying Daggers. The entire movie was in Chinese, with English subtitles. As they got progressively tipsier, the man asked the woman if the subtitles were all correct. I guess, the woman said, even though she understood only half of what was said and was reading the English herself. The man knew much more about Wuxia than she did. He also knew much more about the Tang Dynasty, especially the pottery. During that dynasty, the Chinese had perfected colored glazes. Most famously, they had perfected the tricolored glaze, which is a combination of green, yellow, and white. He even said the Chinese word for it, sansai, and she was a little shocked. No, she was a lot shocked. You would know the glaze if you saw it, he said, once the movie was over and the wine had been drunk. The next day, he sent her a picture of a Tang Dynasty camel with sansai glaze. It was the same camel that had sat next to her mother's fireplace for the past 25 years. The woman asked some of her friends. Most of them were Asian, but she had a few non-Asian friends as well. A red flag? She did not want to continue with this man if he was interested in her only because she was Chinese. She had heard of these men, especially the kind you met on the Internet. She had heard of yellow fever. She didn't like that it was called yellow fever. To name a kind of attraction after a disease carried by mosquitoes that killed one out of four people severely infected said something about the attraction. Her closest friends told her that she was doing what she did best, overthinking and picking out flaws when there weren't any, hence the reason she was still single at 36. As a potter, the man would obviously know about the history of pottery, and he probably just liked House of Flying Daggers as a movie. One of her non-Asian friends said, he's a guy and probably just thinks martial arts are cool. One of her Asian friends said, he probably just wants to impress you. We'll see, she replied. For their next Skype date, he suggested a romantic comedy set in England. 
The following week, an American action film. The next week, a Russian spy drama. After watching, they chatted first about the movie and then about other things. He told her that he had been in a few serious relationships, the most recent of which ended a year ago. What was she like, the woman asked, but really just wanted to know if she was Chinese. The man said that she was nice, though a little neurotic. But what was she like, the woman asked again, and the man said, what do you mean? She was Jewish and tall. He didn't suggest watching a Chinese movie again. When they visited each other, they ate not at Chinese places, but at French, Italian, and Japanese restaurants. She was excited that he was turning out to be a regular guy. He met most of her friends, who afterward found a way to tell her how lucky she was to have met someone like him, single, American, an artist no less, and her age. By American, some of her Asian friends also meant white, the implication being that she was somehow climbing the social ladder. She hadn't thought any of these things before, but now she did. Or maybe she had thought all of these things before and was just now admitting to them. Eventually, the woman felt comfortable enough to ask the man why he had picked House of Flying Daggers for their first date. The answer he gave was even less profound than what her friends had said. It was a random choice, he explained. That day, the movie had popped up on his browser as something that he might be interested in watching. It was critically acclaimed, he said again. So it was settled. The big question of why he was dating her was out of the way. Her Chineseness was not a factor. They were merely one of a billion or so Asian girl, white guy couples walking around on the earth. The sushi chef worked quickly with his hands, and the woman couldn't help but be mesmerized. From a giant wooden tub of warm rice, he scooped out two tiny balls. He molded the balls into elongated dollops. Then he pressed a slice of fish on top of the rice using two fingers, the index and middle, turning the nigiri in the palm of his hand as if displaying a shiny toy car. As a final touch, he dipped a delicate brush into a bowl of black sauce and lightly painted the top of the car. For certain pieces, he wrapped a thin strip of nori around the nigiri. For others, he left the fish slices on a small grill to char. The woman was impressed. This chef looked as though he belonged at the Four Seasons or the Mandarin Oriental. Between courses, he wiped down his cooking station and conversed with them. He spoke softly, which meant that the couple had to listen carefully and not to chew too loudly. The man told the chef that they lived only a few blocks away. The chef lived in Queens, but was originally from Tokyo. The man said that he had seen the chef working here before. The chef said that that was impossible. The man insisted that he had. He said that he walked by this restaurant every day on the way from his studio, and though he had never come in, he peeked inside every now and then and saw a chef, you, he said, working diligently behind the bar. The chef chuckled and said, that's impossible. Why do you say impossible, the man asked. Because this is my first day working here. Oh, the man said, but refusing to admit that he had been wrong, pushed on. He asked if the restaurant was a family-run business. He might not have seen the chef as in you, but he might have seen a brother or a friend. And surely the chef must have come in for an interview. Perhaps when he peeked in that day, the chef was actually there learning the ropes from the previous chef, who might have been the brother or the friend. At this point, the woman put a hand on the man's thigh. The chef chuckled again, longer and louder than before. He looked at the woman, and she felt herself unable to meet his gaze. It was not a family-run business, he clarified. 
He did not know the previous chef. He had been hired yesterday and had interviewed by phone. The man finally let the topic slide, and the woman was relieved. If he'd continued, she would have had to say something. She would have had to explain to the man in a roundabout way that he sounded insensitive, assuming that the chef he'd seen in the window was the chef, and then assuming that the chefs could have been brothers. The roundabout way would have to involve a joke, something like, oh, don't think all of us look the same. And the man would have laughed, and the woman would have laughed, and the chef would have chuckled. It would have to be said as a joke because the woman knew that the man hadn't meant to seem insensitive. He had just wanted to be right. Also, the woman didn't want to make a big deal out of nothing. She didn't want to be one of those women who noted every teeny tiny thing and racialized it. And wasn't it something that she and her closest Asian friends joked about too, that if you considered how people are typically described by the color of their hair and their eyes, it did sound as though they all looked the same? But joking about this with her friends was different from joking with the man. For a moment, the woman felt a kinship with the chef, but the moment passed. After the couple had finished their tea, the waitress came back and started them on a bottle of unfiltered sake. She still seemed miffed from earlier. She spoke only to the man, explaining that the nigori had herbal notes and hints of chrysanthemum. The woman tossed back her sake and couldn't taste either. The man hovered his nose over his cup for a long minute and said that he could smell subtle hints of something. Alcohol, the woman said, mm, something else. Chrysanthemum, something else. The woman wanted to add that perhaps what the man was smelling was bullshit because the waitress was clearly making everything up. How the woman knew was that she had read the back of the bottle, which said the sake had a fruity nose with hints of citrus. What's wrong with me, the woman thought. She was getting riled up over nothing. This was nothing. The man leaned over and rubbed a finger under her chin. She felt better, but not entirely right. The chef smiled at them while slicing two thin pieces of snapper. When enough time had passed, the man began chatting with the chef again. He was curious, he said. The sushi was delicious, and he was wondering where the chef had worked before. He must have had years of experience. It showed. Speaking on behalf of both of them, the man continued, he hadn't had omakase like this in years, and they went to some of the best places in the city. Like where? the chef asked. The man listed the places, and the chef nodded in approval, and the man beamed. The woman felt a need to interject. Many of these omakase places had been her suggestion. To be honest, when they first started dating, the man knew what omakase was, but he had never tried it. He said the opportunity had never come up, and the woman wondered if this was code for, I didn't know how to go about it. I didn't want to look like an idiot if I went in and ordered wrong. So for one of their early in-person dates, she had taken him to a place in Boston. She knew the chef who was Chinese. Many Chinese chefs turned to Japanese food as it was significantly classier and more lucrative. She spoke with the Chinese chef in Chinese about the Japanese omakase, an experience that she would not have known how to describe to her parents, who had been taught to loathe the Japanese, or her grandparents, who had lived through the Sino-Japanese War and did loathe the Japanese. Thankfully, that history was not part of the woman's identity. She had grown up in the States. She felt no animosity toward Japanese people, culture, or food. Anyway, the point was that when she'd visited the man in New York, she had looked up the places he had just listed. She had taught the man that in Japanese, omakase means, I leave it up to you. 
There was one more thing. She had paid. Not always, but most of the time, especially at the more expensive places. And it made sense for her to pay. She earned more. And trying omakase together had been one of their things. She liked that they had things. There was also that place in Boston, the woman interjected. Remember the one I took you to the first time you had omakase? While she was saying this, the woman wondered if she was being too defensive, but she said it anyway. Of course, the man said, without glancing at her. So where did you work again? He asked the chef. A restaurant downtown, he said. He then gave the name, but it was not one that either the man or the woman recognized. You might not know it, he said. It was a very exclusive place, very fancy. We didn't open every day. We opened only by reservation. And to make a reservation, you had to call a specific number that wasn't listed, that was only passed by word of mouth. When you called, you asked to speak with the manager. The manager had to know you, or else he would say you'd called the wrong number and hang up. You're kidding, the man said. Then he looked at the woman and asked if she'd heard that. She had heard it. The chef wasn't whispering. The man leaned over the bar so that his upper body was now above the trays of nori and the bowl of sauce. He was leaning on his elbows like a little boy waiting for a treat from his mother in the kitchen. Adorable, the woman noted, and momentarily felt fine again. So I'm guessing you got tired of that, the man said. Dealing with all those rich folks. No. It was probably the stress. I bet a place like that made you work terrible hours, all those private parties, people who have nothing better to do with their money. No. And not being able to make whatever you wanted, what the customer wants, the customer gets, a place that exclusive, you probably got some strange requests. Yes, but that's not the reason I was fired. Fired? The man looked even more interested. Did you hear that? He said to the woman. To him, if a high-class chef had been fired, that meant that the chef had a rogue streak, which was something the man tended to respect. Also, he was getting drunk. The sake bottle was empty, and the waitress had brought another. Fired for what? the man asked. He offered the chef a cup of sake, but the chef declined. The woman turned her own cup in her hands and stared at the wall behind the chef, which had a painting of a giant wave about to crash three tiny boats. The woman liked the fact that she and the man worked in completely different fields. It meant that there was very little competition between them, and what they had in common was something genuine. The man had no interest in money, and that fascinated her. He seemed a free spirit, but how was he still alive today if he didn't care about money? She, on the other hand, was much more concerned about money and where it came from. She liked her job, but she liked it most because it was stable and salaried. Although she could not say those things to the man, who sometimes said to his friends, bankers, when she made practical remarks about how they were going to split the check. After he said that, he did one of those comical eye rolls to show everyone that he was kidding. It was funny. She laughed along. But later, when she asked him why he did that, he would put a hand on her head and say that she was overthinking it. He was only teasing her because he was so proud of her. She did something he couldn't in a million years do. Numbers, graphs, just hearing her on the phone made his head spin. But the work was clearly important and necessary. And you're able to do this because, well, let's face it, you're smarter than me. The man had said that. When he said it, the woman felt a happy balloon rise from her stomach to her mouth. Fired for what? The chef didn't answer. Instead, he washed his hands, which were now covered in red slime, and picked up a blowtorch to sear the skin of a nearby salmon. A year into dating, she had taken the man to meet her parents. They lived in a cookie-cutter suburb in Springfield, Massachusetts. 
Her father worked for a company that designed prosthetic limbs. Her mother was a housewife. Back in China, they'd had different jobs. Her father had been a computer science professor, and her mother had been a sales clerk. But their success in the former roles had hinged on being loquacious and witty in their native language, none of which translated into English. Every now and then, her father went out for academic jobs and would make it as far as the interview stage, at which point he had to teach a class. He would dress as sharply as he could. He would prepare careful notes. Then during class, the only question he was asked, usually by a clownish kid in the back row, was whether he could please repeat something. Her mother took a job at J.C. Penney but eventually quit. In China, an efficient sales clerk followed customers from place to place like a shadow, but no one wanted her mother to do that at J.C. Penney. In fact, her mother was frequently reported for looking like a thief. Nevertheless, her parents were now comfortable in their 2,000-square-foot house, which had a plastic mailbox and resembled everyone else's. Perhaps her parents liked the sameness of suburban houses because from the outside you couldn't tell that a Chinese family lived inside. Not that her parents were ashamed of being Chinese, and they had taught their daughter not to be ashamed either. You are just as good as anyone else, they told her, even before she realized that this was a thought she was supposed to have. The woman did not know how her parents would react. She had brought home other boyfriends, and the reception had been lukewarm. The man was the first boyfriend she had brought home in a long time. Unfortunately, that made the question of race even harder to answer, as he was also the first white boyfriend she had brought home. So were her parents being welcoming out of relief that their daughter wouldn't become a spinster, or out of surprise that she, as her friends pointed out, had got lucky? As with every complex question in life, it was probably a mixture of both. But was it a 50-50 mix or a 20-80 And if the latter, which was the 80 and which was the 20? Throughout the weekend, the woman felt feverish. Her brain was in overdrive. She watched the man help her mother bring in groceries and then help her father shovel the driveway. She was in disbelief that her father went out and came back with a bottle of whiskey. She didn't know that he drank whiskey. She then had to recalculate the 50-50 ratio to take into account the whiskey. For each meal, her mother set out a pair of chopsticks and also cutlery. When the man chose the chopsticks, her parents smiled at him as if he were a clever monkey who had put the square peg into the square hole. That he could use chopsticks correctly elicited another smile, even a clap. Then they complimented him on everything, from the color of his hair down to the color of his shoes. The woman was glad that her parents were being nice, as it dispelled the cliché of difficult Asian parents. Previously, she had explained to the man that her parents had a tendency to be cold, but the coldness was more a reflex from years of being underdogs than their natural state. When her parents turned out not to be cold at all, the woman was glad. But then she wondered why they hadn't been more difficult. Why hadn't her father been more like a typical American dad and greeted the man at their cookie-cutter door with a cookie-cutter treat? By the end of the weekend, her mother had pulled her aside to say that she should consider moving to New York. The man had thrown the idea out there, and the woman didn't know how to respond. I'm not sure yet, she told her mother, but we're going to look for jobs in both places. Her mother nodded and said, good. Then she reminded the woman that a man like that wouldn't wait around forever. For their last piece of amakase, the chef presented them with the classic tamago egg on sushi rice. The egg was fluffy and sweet. How was that, the chef asked. He asked the question after every course with his shoulders slumped forward, and their response, that it was the best tamago egg on sushi rice that ever had, pushed his shoulders back like a strong wind. The Japanese way, the woman thought, or perhaps the Asian way, or perhaps the human way. 
Dessert was two scoops of mocha ice cream. For the remainder of the meal, the man kept asking the chef why he'd been fired. Another bottle of sake had arrived. It's nothing interesting, the chef said. I doubt that, the man said. Come on, we're all friends here. Though neither he nor the woman knew the chef's name and vice versa. During the meal, no one else had come into the restaurant. People had stopped by the window and looked at the menu but had moved on. Management, the chef finally said. He had done making sushi and had begun to clean the counter. He would clean the counter and wash his rag. Then he would clean the counter again. His purpose wasn't to clean anymore, the woman decided. It was to look as if he had something to do while he told the story. What happened, she asked. At this point, she might as well know. I was fired three weeks ago, the chef said. The manager had booked a party of 50 for a day that I was supposed to have off. Then he called me in. I initially said no, but the party was for one of our regulars. I said I couldn't serve a party of 50 on my own, and he would need to call in backup. He said, okay, and an hour later I showed up, but there was no backup, just me. The manager was Chinese and said that he had called other chefs, but no one had come. The chef stopped cleaning for a moment to wash his rag. I'm not an idiot, he continued. I knew that was a lie, so I only made sushi for two people. I refused to make sushi for the other 48, and eventually the entire party left. Bold, the man said. The woman didn't say anything. There was a piece of egg stuck between her molars, and she was trying to get it out with her tongue. When she couldn't, she used a finger. She stuck her finger into the back of her mouth. Then she wiped the piece of egg, no longer yellow and fluffy but white and foamy, on her napkin. I'm Chinese, the woman said reflexively, the way her parents might have. The chef went back to cleaning his counter. The man cleared his throat. He said, not specifically to the woman or the chef, but to an invisible audience, that's not what the chef meant. I know, the woman said. She was looking at the man. I know that's not what he meant. I just wanted to put it out there. I don't mean anything by it either. The man rolled his eyes and a spike of anger went through the woman or maybe two spikes. She imagined taking two toothpicks and sticking them through the man's pretty eyes to stop them from rolling. Then she imagined making herself a very dry martini with a skewer of olives. Sorry, the chef said. He was now rearranging the boxes of sesame seeds and bonito flakes. He was smiling, but not making eye contact. In a moment, he would start humming, and the woman would not be able to tell if he was sorry for what he'd said or sorry that she was Chinese. A mix of both? She wanted to ask which one it was, or how much of each, but then she would sound insane. She didn't want to sound insane, yet she also didn't want to be a quiet little flower. So there she was, saying nothing but oscillating between these two extremes. In truth, what could she say? The chef was over 60 years old, and the Chinese, or so she'd heard, were the cheapest of the cheap. The man never called her sweetheart. Sweetheart, he said, I think you've had enough to drink. Then he turned to the chef. Time to go, methinks. The chef spoke only to the waitress after that. He called her over to help the couple settle the bill. The woman put her credit card down while the man pretended not to notice. She tipped her usual 20%. What was that, the man said once they were outside. It had got colder. It would take them 15 minutes to walk home. I'm not mad at him, the woman said. And you shouldn't be. He was just telling a story. Again, I'm not mad at him. The man understood. They walked in silence for a while before he said, Look, I wasn't the one who told the story, and you have to learn not to take everything so personally. You take everything so personally. Do I? Also, you have to be a little more self-aware. Aware of what? The man sighed. Aware of what? 
The man said, never mind. Then he put a hand on her head and told her to stop overthinking it. That was Gary Steingart reading Omakase by Waiki Wang. The story appeared in The New Yorker in June of 2018 and was included in Best American Short Stories and the O. Henry Prize Anthology in 2019. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Gary, this story is about an interracial relationship. But we don't actually learn that until we're more than a thousand words into it. You know, we learn all these other details about how different these two people are, about she's a financial analyst, he's a pottery instructor, she's anxious about choosing dishes at the restaurant, he goes with a flow. She makes spreadsheets, he ignores them. Why do you think that Wang delays revealing the the ethnicities of the couples. Mm -hmm. Ah, yeah, that's a very interesting strategy. You're right. I mean, race becomes one of the more interwoven parts of the story. But you're absolutely right that the first thousand words are more about more traditional kind of culture clashes of people from different cities. Also, most importantly, I think, is the culture clash between professionals and creatives, you know, which I think is such a nexus of so many, I mean, this couple lives in in central Harlem, but so many Brooklyn relationships are built around this struggle, this very Mm -hmm. Mein Kampfian struggle of, Mm -hmm. of people. When I researched Lake Success, I remember I would talk to all these hedge funders who were almost invariably male, and then I would talk to their wives who almost all, you know, worked in the media or worked in, you know, the kind of cultural job that the man does in this in this story. Mm-hmm. So that was another kind of interesting twist that he is the potter. But also that becomes a kind of a funny immigrant twist because she is expected to earn money not by society but by her parents, 
you know, which is what every single immigrant has always heard. We brought you to this country, and for what? You know, you're going to get that lip ring? No. You're going to go get an MBA from Wharton, and you're going to work for Bain Capital, wherever the hell you do in, in Boston. Well, so when you do actually find out that she's Asian-American and he's white, does that then change how you read that first section of the story? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, there's the horrible authorial bias, too, that everyone has, right? Mm -hmm. So everyone assumes that if I'm writing someone, it's going to be a a Russian character. And And a man. And a man, yeah, yeah. And when I teach um, my immigrant fiction class, that's something we talk about quite a bit, the expectation that, that readers have of a writer. And the horrible thing is, obviously, I brought that expectation too. You know, mm-hmm. obviously, I know uh, like Wang's work, but I think just in general, that especially because it's a woman, right, that it, it should be a, a stand-in character. Mm-hmm. I wish I didn't do that. You know, I mean, I, I, I chide myself for that. Um, but yeah, the, the, the way she sort of, once he starts speaking, I think like his... Whiteness, which I know I'm being very generalizing here, and you know we're going to get some angry people on Twitter, but his he sort of carries his whiteness as a kind of badge. You know, I yesterday there was um, I was being mistreated by a bartender, and oh my goodness, I know, right? <laughs> which is so shocking because I drink so much that you know the bartenders should they should love you. They should love me. I, I am their their major patron. Uh, but I was being mistreated by a bartender and I kind of let him do it. And then I kept thinking like, oh, if I was like the native born man here, I could have made a joke or I could have kind of butted in in a way. But I'm, you know, I'm a Soviet immigrant and the customer is always wrong. You know, (laughs) the the state is always right. The bartender is always right. And I was like, ah, you know, and I guess maybe it's because I was rereading the story, sort of preparing myself. And I was thinking, oh God, I should have been like, you know, fuck you. This is like a twenty dollar drink. You know. Yeah. But I wouldn't. I, I can't do stuff like that. Right. You know? But and this. I, but this man can. This man can. You know, because also. <laughs> the, and, and also, he goes into restaurants, bars, etc., and he always talks to everyone. And I'm yeah. never talking to anyone. Like I'm scared of small talk. I'm scared of all this crap. You know. And I feel terrible because they're working with you know for a living in the service industry and I'm not oh, there's guilt it's like I, I'm just and you're all, a mess you're just a mess I'm just a mess I'm a hot mess and I'm sort of getting this character the woman who's also kind of a hot mess because then she's like oh shit you know she says I'm Chinese she's proud of it but at the same time you know the chef may have been fired by a Chinese management who exploited him I and mean, it's like there's this like layer cake of of angst and anxiety and Weird, like, flashes of both pride and inferiority. You know, it's a, it's a spicy meat of ball, this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, let's go to that scene. Yeah. So he's the, the chef um, finally tells the story of why he was fired. Yeah. And <laughs> it's because his boss asked something completely unreasonable of him and he refused to do it. But he does say somewhat, it's a non sequitur, oh. the manager was Chinese. So what happens with her? It's this roller coaster, and, and yeah. she does this so well in the story because there's a roller coaster with everything. And then in the end, you know, the the big honky says, you know, oh, you overthink everything. But she has to overthink everything, and he has the privilege of not overthinking everything, obviously, right? But she has to overthink everything because everything is a minefield. And the kind of joke is that she goes into this restaurant, which is staffed by two Asian people, right? Um 
even her Asianness becomes a minefield, but not for the white man who has this hilarious moment of, of misidentifying the Asian man, right, who clearly had never stepped foot in this restaurant before, right? But he gets off scot-free, so to speak, and she is completely pilloried by both of them in a way, right? So she suffers throughout this whole meal uh, while he gets to, A, flirt with the waitress and then kind of stand up for the chef. It's like such a mess. Yeah. In that scene, he does. He defends the chef by saying he didn't mean anything by it. Right. That's Um, right. He defends the chef to her, almost like an ambassador of the chef's hurt Asian-ness or Japanese-ness. It's very sophisticated. Yeah. You know, it also creates this dilemma that I think a lot of writers who come from particular cultures and who write from a kind of one and a half generation perspective is that often we are more attacked by people from our own culture. Often you don't authentically represent us. Mm-hmm. And there's so many ways to skin that cat. Oh, it's a horrible phrase. Sorry, cats. Sorry, cat <laughs> lovers. Um, but it's, you know, there's like so many ways to go at it. There's like, oh, but you came too early. You didn't live enough years in Beijing, Moscow, whatever, you know. Or you write about us in a way that makes us look bad. You know, for example, there's a line in there where she is thinking as a Chinese woman, oh, but these Chinese were, are cheap or something. And she's sort of playing with that stereotype, but she's also voicing it, you know. Right. I mean, she bends over backwards to find excuses for what people say that's insulting, right. potentially insulting to Chinese people yes, or her, yes. right? that's right. Even with when the man insists that perhaps he saw the chef's brother, or, you know, somehow. Oh my God, <laughs> and, I love it. And she goes through these sort of conniptions inside her own mind saying, well, I make a joke about how we all look alike or, you know, Uh actually we Uh do kind of look alike (laughs) if you take into account the fact we all have dark hair and dark eyes. Um, She spends so much time trying to sort of excuse these not necessarily racist but but insensitive remarks. And then at the end, I feel it's the first time she stands up for herself when she says, I'm Mm -hmm. Chinese. Mm -hmm. It is interesting, right? And when they walk out, and she says, I'm not mad, and then insists on it, I'm not mad. You know, he says, the guy didn't do anything, you know, I'm not mad, until he understands what she's saying, which is, I was insulted, mm-hmm. and I'm deciding not to be mad. Yeah, and then he says, stop overthinking it. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's really great. It's almost like they're using the chef as a way of dialoguing. Now I'm talking like my shrink, as a way of dialoguing between themselves, right? So that this man and his identity and his ethnicity become a kind of marker between them, right? Like Mm -hmm. almost like a hot potato that they're tossing around. But she is the one, if it's a hot potato, she's the one that gets burned the same way that she gets burned when she picks up that cup, right? Right. And she has to cradle it with her hand. But she, she doesn't protest there either. She just lets her hand go numb from the heat of it. Right. You know, oh, again, there's so many layers. And the other thing that I want to say is just that the way the very luscious description of food, the way the the, the multi-course meal is prepared alongside, it's sort of layered between the present tense and the flashbacks, you know, is very masterfully done, too. There's, There's almost several layers of existence here. There's the past, there's the present, and there's this sort of conjecture where she's trying to figure out what everything will mean and what it will mean in the future. Because also, 
you know, her mother's basically saying, yeah, you're a spinster. He's a good-looking guy. Just marry him. You know, he knows right. how to use chopsticks. Go for it. You know? Yeah. He's not going to wait forever. He's not going to wait forever is a line of incredible cruelty. Yeah. Um, I really feel for this character. Yeah. She really can't win. I mean, she is mm-hmm. from the get-go with this guy. She's on the defensive, right? The first date, he wants to watch House of Flying Daggers. <laughs> and, um, uh, oh, my God. It's just so and funny. Just you so know, funny. he says it's because it's critically acclaimed. And he keeps you, repeating it's because it's critically acclaimed. I love you that. You believe Ugh. that. And then halfway through, he asks her if the subtitles are correct. I suppose Wang keeps it just sort of slippery enough that we don't quite know if he's drawn to her because mm-hmm. she's Asian or mm-hmm. not. Um but what she does make clear is that there is no way for this character to embark on a straightforward relationship with a white guy without feeling that concern or that slight suspicion. Yeah, I think because of the way that he interacts with people and I think the friction is between the way she's been taught to interact with people – And it's interesting because she notes in the story that she had never brought a white person home. And then there's this beautiful line also about how the parents have chosen this cookie-cutter home because she thinks that – she thinks they think that a person walking by won't think, okay, Chinese people live there. Which Because also when I'm reading this character, I also have such an affinity for her because she's very clearly of a very certain kind of generation, right? She's in her 30s. This was in 2018. So – you know, probably came over in the late 70s. No, early 80s, the way I came over in the late 70s, early 80s, you know. So there's a very particular kind of attitude, I think, that immigrants had that has now supplanted my a more kind of globalized world. And even the setting of this kind of omakase, right, where it's the Japanese food and, and um, even that, I think, has a different flavor than, than another story back in the day, which might have been them going to, I don't know, a French restaurant or something. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think, you know, the one thing that really stands out to me in this story is the fact that these characters don't have names. It's you know, great. they are the man yeah. and the woman. Yeah, the um, why, what do you think that tactic is as a yeah, writer? You know, it's, it's a tough – don't try this at home would be my uh, advice to, <laughs> to uh, you know, to, for example, students who are just starting out in, in, in writing. It's very hard to do this without veering into pretension, I think, mm-hmm. because it can be incredibly annoying – I think the strategy pays off because of the humor. Mm-hmm. When you're doing this kind of minimalist humor, minimalist, whatever we were calling it, like what level of detail do you allow? So, for example, what does Central Harlem do? Like what's the inclusion of that do to the piece? I was thinking about that as I was reading it because it comes up a couple of times, right? Because there in central Harlem, which sort of, I guess, is in the middle of both the traditionally on one side an African-American neighborhood, on the other side a Latino neighborhood. So they're in a sense also part of a new gentrifying elite, right, composed of both a white man and an Asian woman. I mean, I think – I don't think she makes choices just haphazardly, but setting it in Brooklyn is just like the old cliche, right? They're in Brooklyn. Uh, but it could have been, I don't know, Hoboken, right? Or or it could have been just that he moves. they moved to New York, right? right. And, and, and the neighborhood is left untouched. Or it's Queens where 
that's a whole other thing because Queens is the one neighborhood, well, like I was mentioning before, where immigrants truly do feel like we're in charge. I mean, that's where I spent my youth uh, until I was 18, and that's where it's okay to have a weird accent. And I wonder how that scene would play out if instead of Harlem, they walked out onto streets and streets of Flushing, you know, right. where, where everything right. is a Chinese-owned business, right? Yeah, I mean, it is interesting that she puts them in a neighborhood that neither of them are the dominant yes. inhabitant of. But are dominant in terms of maybe the financial power that they bring to it, at least she right. brings to it. She brings right. to it. And I, lo- I love that she picks up most of the checks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and even by omission, like, I can just tell that when there's, like, a $30 bill or something, he's like, oh, I'll get it, and just slaps down his card. Because I think what good short stories do, and this is why I don't write short stories, is that good short stories in the span of, like, 6,000 words, characters are supposed to be as well rounded as you would in a novel, right? So this is kind of like a miraculous task that I leave to the Chekhov's of the world because I need my 120,000 words of elbow room to get anything going, you know. I I guess I wonder, you know, if these characters had names and say they were Mm -hmm. Susan and (laughs) Vladimir. (laughs) Oh, God, no, that would be horrible. If they were, you know, Ja and Mike, something, you know, would would we read it differently? Well, because the name adds something to it. So, you know, a lot of East Asian immigrants, including my wife, got very traditional American names, you know, like Harold. God knows how many Korean Harolds I know or Korean Eunices, right? Because some of the names also have a kind of equivalent in in the home language. Not an equivalent, but something that remotely sounds like it, right? My name was Igor, and my parents changed it to Gary because Igor was like Frankenstein's assistant in America. In Russia, it's a beautiful name, but in America, it's this horrifying thing, and I was already being beaten to a pulp, so let's let's try to help this kid out. Um, But, right, so her name, yeah, you mentioned Susan. Susan is a kind of name I could picture her having, right? But what does that bring more to the table? No, there is something it brings to the table, right? It kind of puts her parents, right, in the position of naming her this as a way of putting their foot forward and saying, well, we're not going to give you a Chinese name, even though that means so much to us, but we're going to give you this American name so that you can fit in better. Now, his name, like, it could bring an added frisson of humor, right? So, like, a generation ago, half the annoying people from Park Slope are named Noah, right? So, like, <laughs> naming, and no offense to all the Noahs listening, right? But but, right. but this is, she's like, I'm pairing it back to the very basics because I want what he calls her overthinking to, to really run the show and not anything, not any of these other accoutrements I could throw at him. Right, right. And keeping them as the man and the woman is playing with the idea that they're types, they're stereotypes, they're... That they're stereotypes. And she does that, right? And she, at one point she thinks of the chef as Japanese, as an Asian, and then she kind of almost says, like, just think of him as a human, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. So going back to, to the issue of her paying for things, you know, they say every relationship is a, is a power balance or a power-driven relationship. Yeah. And typically in this situation, you know, the cliche is the white man makes the money, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. that's reversed here. So yeah. is he in a way with his patronizing and his, mm-hmm. you know, your overthinking and the pats on the head, mm-hmm. is he compensating for what he feels to be his his sort of inferiority? Now, that's interesting because what the character is positing is that he doesn't even care. Yeah. And that it's, he or thinks it's oblivious. cute that she's a banker and et cetera. I don't know. That's a tough one. 
if this story were to have a sequel or if, you know, <laughs> this was be, to become a series, I would love to know more about that question, which I don't think is satisfactorily answered. I'm not saying it should yeah. be, but yeah. it is an interesting question about whether there are – I think there must be some level of inferiority, but what is it? You know, Chang Ray Lee, who was my mentor and is a, obviously a wonderful uh, writer and who writes about the immigrant experience – I teach a native speaker at Columbia in my immigrant agogo class. So, yeah, he's an Asian-American man. He's a Korean-American man who's dating this very waspy woman, right? And there's a line that she has, which is like, oh, a white woman has no mysteries anymore. You know, I think Americans who are native-born and who don't have a huge ethnic backdrop to themselves are always looking for it, like this question of what am I? An American doesn't always do the trick. There's something that we as people who are born abroad or who have a very well-defined culture have, you know. And maybe the insecurity is that, that he knows about Chinese ceramics, but he has absolutely no background of his own that he can bring to the fore. Right, right. Maybe that's the insecurity. It could be. I mean, one of the funnier details I find in the story is that, you know, he's presented as so patronizing to her. But you notice there are two, really only two moments in the story, I think, where she expresses happiness at something he does or, you know, attraction in that way. And one is when she sees him leaning over the counter and she says he's like a little boy waiting for a treat from his mother. And the other is when he tells her she's smarter than him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So these are moments when she gets to feel superior, I suppose. Yes. So the you're super smart is something I see her wanting from her parents in a desperate yeah. way. Yeah. Right? Because obviously there is so much pain in that relationship with her parents. And again, the pain is left with such small, careful strokes You're old, you should get married, he's not going to wait around forever, you know, all that kind of stuff. Even him bringing that bottle of whiskey out of the garage, the dad is almost saying, like, I never did this with you because you're a girl, right? But this is maybe the son I never had because he doesn't talk about siblings, right? No. So the kid, sorry, now I'm getting a little psychoanalytic, him leaning across like a boy is maybe a desire for a childhood of being treated like that. I'm not saying she's, you know, that, that her parents were just, you know, taskmasters, but this idea of being loved as a child. See, I mean, we could talk about, it's, it's Talmudic almost, like, you know, <laughs> where you can put like entire little reams of commentary yeah, around it. Yeah. You know? Well, there are a few flashbacks, but, but the entirety of the narrative, the sort of present narrative is set in this tiny restaurant in this hole in the wall. And a lot of it is dialogue. Uh, in a way, it's it's like a short play. Yes. Why do you think that uh, Waiki Wang chose to write it that way? That's an interesting question. I mean, the dialogue here does so much work because it is supposed to both carry the personalities of the people but also the plot, mm-hmm. such as it is. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the whole plot is they go to a restaurant and they eat some sushi and then they they leave. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it has to have very broad shoulders uh, to carry all that uh, all that stuff. Um, yeah, actually, I, I, right now I'm trying to work on my first play. It's a one-man play, actually based off a, a piece, a nonfiction piece I wrote for The New Yorker. 
And I'm sort of, I'm really interested in how things sound when people are talking on stage. And so now whenever I'm reading something that has a, uh, you know, any kind of stage presence, and this certainly did, I was thinking, oh, this could be a really nice play, mm-hmm. you know, because it's actually, there's really four people in the whole play. I mean, if you do the flashbacks, something else, but, you know, it could be yeah. a very, very beautiful, very miniature scene. Yeah, yeah. When the story came out, I did a Q&A with Waiki, and she described the narrative of Omakase as deceptively simple. She said, a couple goes out to dinner, nothing really happens between them except for a quarrel at the end, yet a lot has happened under the surface. I guess, how would you sum up what has happened? Yeah, but you know, but what she's described is like, that's what, <laughs> that's all literary fiction is, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. But has something happened? Has something happened, you know, besides what we see? Has something happened in their relationship? Has something happened well, to it's, her? Well, it's the Passover question, like, why of all nights are we privy to this night? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, if you had to quiz me, I would guess that their relationship will continue and that she won't break up with him. Why? I would think it's the pressure of her parents' guilt on her and also her friends saying, oh, he's fine. There's nothing wrong with you. But I think she knows that she's not overthinking it by the end. Mm-hmm. I'm rooting for her to get the hell out of this relationship. But somehow I feel like like the only exit is him. He's the one who has no appreciation of, of who she is, you know, beyond a few broad strokes that he's sort of created for her. And is being Chinese one of those strokes? Perhaps, you know. It's interesting, right, because often when um, I have students who write about a relationship between any two people, I often ask them, like, why are these two people in this relationship? Like, what does each of them find attractive about the other? And the thing that they can find attractive about the other could be completely wrong, could be completely invented, right? In fact, it's more interesting if that's the case, right? And here, she, I think, deftly does it for her. And and it's like such a sad mixture of things. He looks Rockwellish and... He's kind of like a little kid, and and oh, I mean, the only thing that really kind of goes back to her is that is her is admiration for her intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. But for him, like, what does he see in her? And it's interesting because she doesn't wonder what he sees in her, in a way, right? But and, it's fine without it. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't meet his parents, right? And that's the other thing; she doesn't meet his parents, which would have been an interesting kind of set piece because that's what the immigrants also worry about a lot. Like, okay, especially somebody of a different race. Like, what if there are Archie Bunkers out there, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although somebody this entitled probably came from, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried parents, you know, both law professors <laughs> at Stanford or whatever. You know. Yeah. Well, in that case, he's the black sheep, right? Yeah, he's the black sheep that went off on the ceramics. You know. Yeah. Better yeah. than crypto, but still. I mean, it's interesting that, that, you know, almost his last words in the story or maybe his last words are that she needs to be more self-aware. Yes, when yes, I love the that. The entire story, she's been so hyperly well, that's, self-aware. that's the joke. That's the know? punchline. That's the punchline. In fact, I remember thinking, what if you end it here? Like, that's a good, good punchline. I guess my last question for you is why is this evening so destabilizing? For her. Yeah, it's a good question because I kind of think that a lot of evenings are like this for her. Right. Right? So what begins the destabilization? And I kind of, I think it's the waitress in a way that everything kind of begins to cascade with the waitress. 
because I always do this. You know, recently I've been meeting a lot of younger people from my immigrant group, and I am both shocked by the similarities but also shocked by the dissimilarities and by the way that they feel more in control. Um, But I think that kind of begins the drama of her self-awareness, if you will, the constant awareness of her. And then she goes through that, could she be adopted, et cetera, the whole thing. To me, that's it's all very, very funny. And then she does that whole kind of very humorous kind of like you could almost hear it in a comedy set, that set piece about what it would mean to have, you know, a lip ring and then end up in right. prison and then <laughs> join a lip ring gang and never get to. Is that what work, you want from your Is life? that for your work? You know, you're <laughs> never going to work for Deloitte and Tush or whatever it's called. Um, but there's also an envy or. Yeah. Or a. A dream that one well, it's, be like it's like that. what what you know the original feminists say to new new generation feminists we we worked so hard for you to have this freedom <laughs> she right? says it too we worked so hard yeah. so you can have that lip ring <laughs> yeah oh god it's there's great. resentment because they didn't have that freedom she didn't yeah. she didn't have a lip ring she didn't have the ability to dye her hair yeah you know this story to me um, to me this really kind of advances the way people think about what this particular generation of immigrant thinks. And what makes it pleasurable to me is that it's sheer entertainment. Like there's not a paragraph where there isn't a small painful laugh bomb put yeah. in. Yeah. It's wonderful. No, I'm I'm envious that you wrote it. But I don't know how to write short fiction, so <laughs> take it away, Miss Wang. <laughs> well, thank you so much. No, of course, my pleasure. Waiki Wang is the author of two novels, Chemistry, which won the Penn Hemingway Award in 2018, and Joan is OK, which was published last year. She was one of the National Book Foundation's five under 35. She's been publishing fiction and nonfiction in The New Yorker since 2018. Gary Steingart has published the memoir Little Failure and five novels, including Absurdistan, Super Sad True Love Story, which won the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize, and Our Country Friends, which was published last year. He's been publishing fiction and nonfiction in The New Yorker since 2003. You can download more than 180 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.